This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hey, David. Hey. We Dan. are not in Chicago right no, now. No, we are not coming to you from the William Adams Studios. We're coming to you from the Catholic Theological Union booth at the Anaheim Convention Center. And what is the thing that we're at? It is Catholic Disneyland? I no, think so, yeah. No, it's the, uh, well, it is, in a sense. <laughs> and it's next door to the actual Disneyland. We are at the Anaheim Convention Center for the Los Angeles Archdiocese Religious Education Congress. Just David, myself, and about 40,000 of our closest friends. Mm. And some detractors, but mostly friends. Mostly friends. And this is our second year on the road. Uh, we're grateful to my home institution, Catholic Theological Union, that's housing us for our live recordings today. We have a bunch of friends who are going to be visiting us. And just like last year, David, with his engineering and producing wizardry, is going to... Uh, out some special episodes. This is the first that you're hearing. Yeah. And so uh, we're excited. David, question for you. This is not anymore your first time at the rodeo. What is it like the second time around? Well, so I have a lot more sense of the size of this thing. I didn't realize last year, you had told me the numbers, but it hadn't really sunk in. And so I came much more prepared this year. And I think I've, I've said before that when I travel, I tend to do routines and I tend to make sure that I'm, I'm as much as possible not having triggers for anxiety or some of the, the other kind of trauma stuff that I have. And so I have a pocket full of earplugs. I have, I'm staying in the same hotel that I stayed in last year. I have kind of walked all the places that I know that I'm going to go so that there's no surprises and I know where I'm going. And so all of that has been really, really good this year. And that's what I love about coming back to a place is that it begins to feel like home. I've now found a great place to get you know, lunch, a great place to get breakfast. I know where to get coffee, where I don't have to wait for 20 minutes. All those things are good. How about you? This is like your sixth or seventh time here. <laughs> that's right. I think it, I, I've lost track. It's either six or seven. And the fact that it's been so many times and I've lost track is a sign of uh, how blessed I am to be invited on, uh, at least for the last several years, on a regular basis. And it's been, it's been wonderful. It is, you know, you and I were talking off air last night and you made a comment about how this is sort of a touchstone. It's kind of like a home experience, a kind of familiar experience for me and something I look forward to every year. And that is 100% true. You never know if, if the LA Religious Education Congress is going to invite you to come back and speak. I mean, it's, it's, it, we, the speakers, oftentimes talk amongst ourselves about the, the mystery about how these things are determined. So whenever I get that invitation from the Religious Education Office, it is 
just really uh, a joy and, and an excitement. And like you, I mean, I, I feel like I know this place pretty well. There's there's some difference, some variation every year, but the lay of the land is is pretty consistent. Uh, a lot of the same publishers are here, the same tchotchke peddlers are here, the uh, liturgical investment vendors are here. It's really great. And to see friends, to catch up with folks, and now to have the Francis Effect be a part of this annual tradition and to have you here is, is just wonderful, David. It's great. And for listeners who don't know what we're talking about, I want to make sure that you get a visual of, of the kind of room that we're in. So the, the room that we are in, as far as I can estimate, is bigger than a football field. It, or it, it's probably two football fields, it's, it's, is my guess. It's yeah. a large, large size room. It's open space with columns, and it's subdivided into about nine or ten rows that go all the way down a couple hundred yards. And it is packed, as far as you can see, with vendors. And so the aisles in each of these nine or ten subdivisions are just kind of from stem to stern. They're little 10 and 20 foot cubicles with people who have, like you said, having uh, vestments, cards, books, talking about various educational activities. And the thing that is amazing to me is that by noon today, this entire room will be shoulder to shoulder with people. And that is both amazing and, for me, terrifying. <laughs> it is. It is. And even for somebody who doesn't have the same experience of, of trauma and stress, it is overwhelming. It is ah. overwhelming. But we don't want to scare folks away. No. It's, it's manageable, manageable overwhelmingness. And it's, as David said, the best kind of overwhelmingness because it's you know, thousands and thousands of people who are excited about their faith, who want to learn, who are energized. Uh, for our listeners, and I think last year we made a similar sort of analogy that if you're an academic, in, in particularly in the theology or religion or scripture world, you'll be familiar with AARSBL, yeah. uh, which is kind of the big guild gathering for scholars of religion. And there's usually about 10 or 12,000 who show up for that event every year. This is about four times the size of it and zero of the snark of AAR. So there's less cynicism. There's, people are really genuine. People are very excited to be here. And uh, by and large, it's, it's really, really a great, great opportunity. Oh, well, with that, let's, let's take a break and we'll get back into this with some of our guests. But for now, from the Anaheim Convention Center and the LA Religious Education Congress, I'm David Dalt with Dan Haran, and this is The Francis Effect. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with Father Dan Haran, and we are at the Anaheim Convention Center at the L.A. Religious Education Congress, and we have many guests that we're going to be talking to, but today we have Robert Ellsberg. And Dan, tell us a little bit about who Robert Ellsberg is. We do not have enough time to go through it all. Robert is the uh, publisher of Orbis Books. That's his day job, I guess we could say. In addition to so many other things, he's the author of many books, including his latest Living Gospel, Reading God's Story in Holy Lives. And he has written a lot and edited the writings of Dorothy Day. He is the, if you're a subscriber, and I encourage you, if you're not, to subscribe to Give Us This Day, the monthly kind of devotional and daily reflections and prayer book that's offered by Liturgical Press. Robert, you'll recognize his name, offers reflections on the saints every day, I think, right? Is that right? Every, every day. day. I usually contribute a reflection, you know, once every two months or something like that. Robert has to write 30 to 31 
every single month. I get I get Sundays off, unlike you. Oh, that's <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. So there's so much more we could say. Robert is an extraordinary person, a, a great thinker, a great writer, a great presenter, and we're very honored to have him with us. Robert, maybe you can begin by telling us a little bit about your latest book, and, and maybe that would be a good segue to talk about some of the, the workshops you're offering this year. Well, I've been writing about saints and holy lives for many years now. 25 years ago, I had my first book, All Saints. And as you said, I write the daily column for Give Us This Day. And I've just been fascinated with holy lives. And the idea that in looking at the saints, what's significant about them is not just their great achievements or their heights of mystical you know, experience or their, some wisdom that they put down in their books, but the kind of living gospel that's written in their lives and the narrative of their lives. And that means that everything, you know, the, if you look at St. Augustine, when he looked back on his life, he didn't just highlight the good parts, you know. It, right. was, it was all part of God's story in his life. And even the times when he thought he was farthest away from God, he said, you know, God was hovering, you know, there behind me. And if you look at other saints in that kind of light, you see that their struggle for their vocation, their doubts, their failures, their blind spots, all of that were, you know, were part of the, what Pope Francis calls the, the journey faith, encountering God along the road. So I, I begin by kind of talking about that concept, and then I focus in on, on some examples of people who've been very important to me, Dorothy Day, Thomas Merton, Henry Nouwen, uh, some of your friends there, yeah. Yeah, exactly. David. Well, I, I want to ask a follow-on with that, because you just recently participated in Martin Doblemeyer's recent film, Revolution of the Heart, about Dorothy Day. That's right, yeah. And so, you know, when we're looking at ancient saints, I think that sometimes we can fall into the mistaken idea that somehow these people walked around kind of radiating auras of holiness all the time. <laughs> when we look at a more contemporary saint like She's not yet a saint, but but a, a more contemporary figure like Dorothy Day, who is being considered for canonization. I guess my question for you is, we must believe that saints walk among us now. Mm-hmm. What should we be looking for? How should we be noticing? What are the marks of saints while they're alive, not when they're dead, I guess is what I'm asking. Well, you know, Jesus actually laid out a catalog of the, you know, the qualities of, of holiness, of what it means to be a, a disciple. The Beatitudes, we kind of take that for, for granted. Uh, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the peacemakers, whatever. And think of that, you know, who are we talking about? We're talking about Mother Teresa. We're talking about, you know, St. Francis or something. We can obviously think of people among us like Dorothy Day, who's, you know, the classic peacemaker, or Oscar Romero, who, you know, his, his passion for, for justice. But we can all think of people like that in our own uh, acquaintance. And one of the things I'm trying to emphasize in my book is the difference between holiness and saints and those who are canonized saints, who are just the tip of the iceberg. Those are exceptional paradigmatic figures. And their function is not to just venerate them and think, oh my God, I could never be like that, but to, to inspire us in some way. How do we reflect those kind of virtues or values in our, in our own lives? I think what's really great about that, too, is, is how it aligns. And I know you've done a lot of work with Pope Francis's writings. You've published a lot of Pope Francis's writings, including the latest on the Gospel of Matthew, which mm-hmm. yeah, uh, the great forward writer. Uh, Brilliant forward. <laughs> thanks. Some, some unknown figure named Dan Haran. So right, we'll right, leave right. that to you to, to order, but you should get it. But one of the things that Pope Francis points out in his exhortation on holiness that aligns so well with what you're describing right now, Robert, is this idea that there's everyday saints, you know, the saints next door, the middle class saints that he talks about. And, you know, this idea, too, that sanctity isn't perfection, Mm -hmm. that every saint is also a sinner. 
is really important too because it allows us to recognize that the Beatitudes, like you said, are our responsibility as well. It's not just for Dorothy Day or Francis of Assisi or Oscar Romero who get a quote-unquote special grace. Like all of us, by virtue of baptism, are called to that, right? But you also think like, you know, when you say blessed are the merciful, you think like, okay, then there's this merciful person who just walks around exhibiting mercy all the time. Yeah, what does that look like? You know, but no, that, I mean, every time you perform an act of mercy, you're among the merciful, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, but you may have, you know, you may be other things as well. I, I just sent out a tweet that was very, went kind of viral with a picture of Dorothy Day and a quote from her. Someone told her to t- hold your temper. And she said, I hold more temper in one minute than you will in your entire lifetime. Ooh, that's Ooh. good. I relate to that so much. <laughs> <laughs> we have a new patron saint for David. Yeah, well, I mean, Dorothy Day's been a touchstone for me for a while. But when we're thinking about this question of sainthood, and I love the idea of everyday saints, and I love the idea, although I'm, I, I'm a little uncomfortable with the language, the idea of middle-class saints also speaks to me. Yeah. <laughs> but middle-class saints, I think, also touches on I guess a bigger question, and that is to be middle class, to be involved in an economy, you're involved in relationships that extend far beyond where you are standing and the choices that you're making right now. And Carl Rahner at one point talked about a banana. And he said, you, you, you go and you buy the banana in the grocery store, you don't think about the fact that the banana was picked by someone who was basically paid starvation wages, and it was brought and it burned fossil fuels to come here. So there's a, there's a whole unseen cost to where we're standing. When we think about being saintly, making saintly choices, reflecting on the Beatitudes, how does an average everyday middle-class saint, a person who's trying to live by the Beatitudes, account for those unseen, invisible lines of relationship that may entangle them in violence or in oppression, how can we be making steps right now, right here, in the choices that we make to minimize those sorts of things and the effect that we have in the world, the damage that we do in the world by these unseen relationships? Well, I think it's not like a once and for all you know, kind of thing. It's a process. It's a journey of trying to learn how to detach yourself from an identity that's based on what you have, you know, and is rooted in, in a relationship with God and seeing, you know, God's presence in, in, in others, particularly those on the margins, particularly those who suffer. Well, I, I, going back to the, to the Beatitudes, I, I think of always, I think one of the most mysterious of them all is blessed are those who mourn. And oh, you think, well, interesting. what's so yeah. good about mourning? You know, like, get over it. Like, just being sad all the time. You know, they're the saints who had the gift of tears. They'd think about Jesus' suffering and cry all the time. Like Ignatius Loyola talks about the tears, yeah. But I think think it has to do with overcoming that kind of callousness that makes us incapable of sensing and feeling and hearing the cries of the poor, the cries of the earth, the suffering of the world. You know, someone like Dorothy Day, you know, she wasn't just sad all the time, but she mourned. She had a capacity for mourning. Pope Francis, in his you know, first speech when he left Italy, went to Lampedusa, where the island where so many refugees have drowned. And he says, you know, who mourns for these people? Who cries for these people? And you see the Pope is a happy kind of person, but he has not desensitized himself. And I think that is the first thing, is overcoming that desensitization. That leads to everything else, I think. What I love about what you just said, it makes me think of as a father, some advice that I've gotten, and that is, you know, sometimes your kids will feel homesick if they go and they stay with a friend or whatever they may, or if they go on vacation, they'll feel homesick. And you don't want them to feel sad, but at the same time, that means that they've got something to miss. It means that there's something loving that they now recognize is not an immediate part of their lives. So I'm hearing what you're saying about blessed are those who mourn and the kind of mysterious nature of that. 
it is a blessing to be able to mourn because it means that even though you're sad now, you had that connection. You had that empathy and that depth of relationship that the loss of it is indicative of something. I think that capacity to mourn is our capacity to envision that a different world is possible. Mm. If you're, you don't, everything's good. Uh, things have never been so great. Economy's booming, you know. You don't have any impetus to change things. You want them to stay this, the way they are. And God is always calling us toward change, you know, calling our society, calling our world to change, calling to conversion. And if you don't have that certain kind of sense, some part of you that's saying, this is not the way things should be, I'm not the way I should be, you're never going to get there. So I have a couple questions about Dorothy Day. So we're talking about, you know, here we are with one of the greatest living experts of Dorothy Day. You had the the privilege of knowing her and, and knowing her well in in this life, you know, um, <laughs> and continue to be a custodian of her legacy in so many ways today. Two questions, I suppose. One is, in talking about the complicatedness of the reality of sanctity, right? Sanctity doesn't mean perfection. I think often of Francis of Assisi, one of the things that a lot of people who love Francis, and most people do, right, even non-Christians, don't realize is that there are plenty of early stories of the friars who knew him that are not so flattering, you know, where he's kind of expressed his anger in a sinful way or has to reconcile himself with a brother or does something like that. And what I love about those stories is it shows that the kind of complexity of them, that, that, that saints are not just these statues that we kind of venerate, as you said earlier. So my question is, is there something about Dorothy Day to help kind of humanize her more as she's kind of being moved along and, and we're praying for her you know, formal canonization, her being added to the canon. Are there any kind of personal stories that you can think of where you're like, you know, this is where I experience not only Day's sanctity, but also her true humanity? Well, I didn't get to know her well enough to experience the dark side of Dorothy Day (laughs) toward the end of her life. But I think you'll like my uh, talk on Sunday. The the topic is actually everyday holiness. And I, I talk about Dorothy Day quite a lot and her the influence of Therese of Lisieux on her thinking. Because you think of Dorothy Day as this activist, and you think of a lot of saints in terms of these great things that they did. But most people's lives, including all those great saints, were not spent doing great things. They were spent in everyday life. And what the things that I really learned from Dorothy Day and when I edited her diaries many years after she died and I knew her, was to see how her spirituality, her holiness, was expressed in everyday encounters with people trying to be you know, uh, more forgiving, trying to be more charitable, trying to be more patient. And that her practice of you know, the little way, in a sense, was what equipped her for you know, being able to be arrested with the farm workers or go to jail protesting civil defense drills and that sort of thing. That's wonderful. And my second question is something that you shared at a keynote address last year at a conference about Thomas Merton that we were both attending. You kind of did a myth-busting around Dorothy Day, one of her most famous phrases, at least that's attributed to her, which is something to the effect of, don't call me a saint, I don't want to be dismissed that easily. Do you have anything you want to add about that or any kind of myth-busting around well, that? Well, it's not so much uh, myth-busting. What's funny is that one line ha- seems to be the thing that everybody you know, yeah. she's most famous for. What, what is Dorothy best known for? She's best known for saying, don't call me a saint. And people say, well, here they're trying to make her a saint, the poor woman. Just you know, respect her wishes. She didn't want to be a <laughs> saint. Well, she, of course she wanted to be a saint. She didn't want to be put on a pedestal, you know, and she didn't want people to think, oh, Dorothy Day, you know, I'm no Dorothy Day. I can never do what she does. Well, you're not called to do what Dorothy Day, you know, did. You're called to hear the gospel and to respond in, in your own life, just the way she did. The, where I feel a little embarrassment 
is that I think I may deserve a lot of the blame or credit for popularizing that. I, I used it in the introduction to our selected writings decades ago, and I don't even frankly remember where I heard it first. But, you know, it seems, it's, it's, I think it's characteristic of her, but uh, there's no particular source, but everybody knows that. And, and so it, it, in talking about the canonization of Dorothy Day, you have to talk about the difference between, you know, our idealizing and putting, you know, making saints into plaster statues and really understanding them and, and knowing them as human beings. Well, what I love about that, too, is uh, what I call myth-busting is, is a similar thing with the legacy of Francis of yeah, Assisi, sure. where people talk about, you know, preach the gospel at all times with necessary use yeah. words. Well, he never said that. No, no. But to your point, or, or the peace prayer attributed to Francis, you know, Lord, make me instrument of your peace, that's a, it's a, actually a very didn't, contemporary. Didn't, Francis, he did say, be the change you want to see in the world, right? No, he didn't. Oh, no. That's <laughs> another one. People, people, I see that on signatures of emails all the time, and I'm like, that that is no, that's not a thing. <laughs> but, but uh, at least with the peace prayer of Saint Francis and with this preach the gospel at all times business, like your point about Dorothy Day, I think it summarizes well the spirit of Francis, which is really great. I've got a question for you. Since we're here at LA Congress, you're a regular staple here, both as an exhibitor and as a presenter. How many years have you been coming? Oh gosh, decades. I don't know. Decades. I've been at Orbis for 33 years now. So at least 33, probably. Oh, not. I hadn't come every year. Oh, okay. The last 15 or 20 years, I've come just about every year. Yeah, I don't a... speak very often, but I am this year. Oh, that's wonderful. And and what for folks who are listening who don't have a personal experience of LA Congress, what's your favorite memory? What? How would you describe what this is all about? You know, you, you meet Catholics mostly in in the parish. And to see people who have taken a whole, you know, kind of weekend here who just want to soak up an environment of Catholic faith and, and be open to some kind of challenge. Again, there are people who believe that their faith is more than just going to church on Sunday, saying grace over a meal or something like that, but really want to learn, want to be challenged, want to grow, want to grow more deeply in their faith. And, and that's always very inspiring. Well, Robert Ellsberg, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for the work that you do and for the patient way that you make the saints available to us. And we're just really, really glad to have you here on The Francis Effect. It's been my pleasure. Thanks, Robert. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with Dan Horan, and we are at the L.A. Religious Education Congress in Anaheim, California, and we're talking with Phyllis Zagano, and Dan is going to tell us a little bit about Phyllis. Yes, Dr. Phyllis Zagano is many things to many people, including His Holiness Pope Francis, and in that regard, in addition to her you know, many years of excellent scholarship as a Catholic theologian and historian, has written too many books for us to talk about. If we just listed them, we'd run out of time, so we won't. But we will talk about her most recent book in a moment. In August of 2016, the Holy Father appointed Dr. Zagano to the Pontifical Commission for the Study of the Diaconate of Women. This is just the latest in a lifelong uh, amount of important scholarship that uh, Dr. Zagano has offered to the church and to the world. Her latest book, published by Paulus Press, is titled Women, Icons of Christ, and we'll talk more about that. But she, like me, is also a columnist at National Catholic Reporter, and her column that was just published today as we're speaking, her latest one is titled, It is Time to Ask Formally for Married Priests and Women Deacons. Dr. Phyllis Agano, welcome back to the podcast. Well, I am so happy to be here in L.A. with uh, 23,000 other people. It's a wonderful <laughs> event and a happy day for the church. It sure is. I mean, 
you know, we think about like the numbers decreasing and vocations decreasing and people for very good reasons being skeptical, cynical, hurt and frustrated with the church. But when you're at LA Congress, there is a kind of booster shot of the Holy Spirit. Is that so true? Maybe we can begin with this morning's publishing of your column. Tell us a little bit about this idea of needing to formally ask for the ordination of women to the presbyterate and to the diaconate as you're making the case in this column. I absolutely do not speak about the ordination of women to the presbyterate. The final document of the uh, Synod for the Amazon, which came out last October after the Synod uh, finished in October 26, 27th, recommended that the Amazon region have men who are married ordained as priests. It also uh, found that women uh, ordained as deacons was a a major point of discussion. In fact, nine of the uh, 12 language groups actually requested women uh, be ordained to the diaconate. And then uh, just a little while ago, dated the 2nd of February, the Quirita Amazonia, the Holy Father's response to the final document came out. And that was an apostolic exhortation. Now, an apostolic exhortation is an interesting kind of document. And the Holy Father said right at the beginning, this is not replacing the final document. This is to be read in accord with the final document. And he underscores that fact by signing it from St. John Lateran, his diocesan cathedral, not from St. Peter's Basilica. So we find that he has a beautiful meditation about the rape of the planet, really. I mean, he, he has a beautiful exhortation, which should be read actually in, in, in coordination with Laudato Si, about the way the Amazon region is being disfigured. Now, what's the answer? Well, for Francis, the answer is, is the gospel. And uh, how, do we, how do we bring the gospel to the people of God, certainly, but how do we bring the, the, the gospel to the Amazon? So there is a section about ministry. He doesn't mention ordaining married men as priests. He does not mention ordaining women as deacons. Why? Well, it's a different kind of document. The document that in which he would rule disciplinarily would be a um, apostolic constitution, for example, an encyclical or motu proprio. But how do they happen? Well, they happen or simply give a derogation from the law to an individual bishop. Well, if I, if I can there, I mean, this is an important thing, and we as theologians, and you know, David as, as well as a theologian, we, it may be familiar to us, but just for our listeners to clarify, I mean, you, you bring up such an important point about the genre of the teaching itself. Mm-hmm. And so an exhortation could contain the teaching of a higher authority, authoritative doctrine or something like that. But interestingly enough, when it comes to something like in the case of ordaining married priests, you know, males to the presbytery. And I'm grateful that you clarified my question earlier because I wanted to make sure that's clear because some people conflate these things, you know, women deacons and, and women priests, two very different things altogether. Uh, and, and so that's important it's to clarify. not my work at all. Not your work at all. Important to know. But when this question about ordaining married men to the presbyterate, it's a church discipline that clerical celibacy is, is a requirement for for presbyters in the Latin West as a norm. And because of that, it's actually a relatively low level of teaching. It could be, as you say, a motu proprio, which is on the Pope's own authority. It could be a constitution, which is a little bit 
you know, more formal or encyclical, which is, you know, again, something circulated for the whole church. So I thought your column this morning was really insightful, highlighting the fact that this is not the genre, this is not the place. And so it's also interesting, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the Holy Father does not close the conversation. He doesn't shut anything down as we might have seen in two of his, you know, pontifical predecessors. Right. right? Well, not at all. Actually, um, the clerical celibacy is not even a teaching. It's a discipline. That's right. And we have in the Latin West uh, the uh, the fact that certainly many uh, Anglican uh, convert priests have, have been ordained as Catholic priests. They're here and there. There are various uh, examples of married priests who are Western Catholic priests, Latin Rite Catholic priests. So that's a disciplinary issue. I'm of the of the opinion that the diaconate of women is also a disciplinary issue. I'll say more about that. There is no there is no ruling against women as deacons. You see, the whole diaconate died out with the uh, legalization, the codification of the cursus honorum, uh, which is the course of honor to in around the 12th century. If you were going to be anything. Uh, you had to first be tonsured and then be... A porter and a... Well, the order was lector, porter, exorcist, acolyte, and then the major order of subdeacon and deacon and priest. No, By the 12th century, no one was allowed to be ordained a deacon unless he, only he, was on the way to become a priest. Now, we do have examples of women ordained as deacons up to the 12th century. Certainly in Luca in Italy, we know that Otone had, had women deacons, but for the most part, there were no more women deacons in the West after the 12th century. They are, however, in the East, and here, there, and everywhere be, for, for whatever reason. So... In the 12th century is around Gresham, time Gresham is codifying, codifying things. And uh, this would be the early kind of code of canon law, we'd say anachronistically. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And so it becomes illegal to ordain someone, a deacon, who is not ordained a priest. Well, where does that come today? It's canon 102.4, which is only a baptized male is validly ordained sacred orders. Well, what are sacred orders? Yeah, yeah. Um, because at the time, only a baptized male is validly ordained a deacon or a priest because only a deacon is going to be a priest. So, so the connection between the diaconate and the priesthood is really false. So if I'm hearing you correctly, in the same way that, and if I've got this wrong, correct me, in the same way that in kind of common law, in jurisprudence in America, we've adopted some of English common law, and so there's some artifacts that come in that may make for some odd interpretations because we've, in, we've inherited that common law. If I'm hearing your conversation with Dan correctly, the earlier form of canon law, because of this artifact of history that only men that were going to be priests were made deacons, that got kind of carried forward into the 1980s recodification of canon law as well, a kind of Well, earlier than that, earlier oh, okay. than that, in 1913, canon 968, it's, it's almost the same thing. The point is that the custom became, you're a deacon and then you're a priest. Some, some men were deacons for six hours or six days or six months, you know, it just depended. But the diaconate became merely a step on the way to priesthood. And with uh, the Second Vatican Council, we find the, uh, the diaconate re- restored as a permanent vocation. So the, the possibility of a permanent diaconate becomes re- 
energized after Vatican II? Well, the, the historical probability. I mean, women deacons are historically uh, documented. I mean, they're, they're, they're certainly doctrinally possible and, and they're pastorally necessary, which is what the Amazon Synod said. 60% of parishes in the Amazonia are run by women, mostly women religious. Why not have them more formally able to preach, to be judges, and to perform sacraments without jumping through all sorts of legal hoops to give them permission to baptize and solemnly uh, solemnly baptize and witness weddings. Yeah, and, and that's something I think a lot of our listeners may not know. So this season, David and I have been, you know, in each episode of the podcast, have focused on a different sacrament for one of our segments. So about a third of the episode, we've talked about it to give listeners some background and what does the sacrament mean, what's its origin, and so forth. But in the case of the diaconate, there are basically, and this is not a, a condescending thing, but, it, but there's nothing that somebody who's an ordained deacon can do that a, a, lay, a, a baptized lay person couldn't do with special permission. Incorrect. Is that right? Yes. Because it's uh, about ordinary. In terms of sacraments. In terms of sacraments. Terms that's of exactly sacraments, right. Yeah. Well, the, the distinction I was going to make was that juridical one about the ordinary. They're the ordinary ministers. And that's why it's so important because on the one hand, you have women religious who are able, because of the dispensations that are given in terms of you know, the bishop saying, well, you can you know, witness weddings, you can baptize, et cetera, et cetera. But they're not the ordinary ministers of the sacraments in the way that by virtue of being ordained, it becomes normative, right? Well, this is true. There's a woman in, at MIT, Teva Regulays, who's a Greek Orthodox, and she has a beautiful Classmate discussion. Classmate of mine from BC. And gives a beautiful discussion about how the ordained person's representative of the bishop is bringing the ministry of the entire church back to the church because that individual is connected to the bishop. I mean, it's a, a beautiful, beautiful thought. But in terms of deacons not being able to, uh, if you're not a deacon, you can't be a single judge at a uh, canonical trial. You cannot preach. Only a cleric who is involved in a particular liturgy is really allowed to preach at a uh, at a uh, uh, at the liturgy. Give the homily formally. You know, uh, if you're the chancellor of the diocese, there's and you're not a cleric. There are certain things you can't sign. So there's a different thing about being a cleric, which of course means being part of the in the secular world, being part of the bishop's household. That's right. And so uh, Pope Francis, whenever he talks about women deacons, privately and publicly, he always talks about a Syrian professor who told him that when a woman complained that her husband was beating her, she would go to the woman deacon who would examine the bruises. And the woman deacon would then give the testimony to the bishop and I, I think the logical end of that is that that's a judgment being rendered by a woman deacon. Yeah. And the, uh, the bishop effectively says, sure, fire him. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, uh, this is an annulment. It's not necessary for you to be beaten. Yeah. I mean, it just opens up so many possibilities of ministry in the church, accompaniment, of serving, of ministering, of leading, of teaching, all the things that, that you're talking about. Let's talk, if we may, about your latest book. I don't want to lose sight of this. You know, Women, Icons of Christ. And it's a beautiful cover. It's a beautiful image. Tell us, first of all, about the title, because I know there's a story here. There sure is. I was seated at dinner uh, at the uh, Casa Santa Marta with the commission members and, and officers. Uh, if I may just interrupt for a minute, Phil, for our listeners who don't know what that is, that happens to be the location of somebody else. Yeah, well, the Pope's house. The Pope's house. Which is where they put us, or me at least, uh, when I'm over there in Rome. And uh, we're at a big table, a long table, one across, and I was seated across from a member of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith who said, Phyllis, women cannot be ordained because women cannot image Christ. I said, 
watch me. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, so here we have the book, and it is a very nice book. And I go through the sacraments that women deacons in history performed, uh, the argument against women at the altar, which is a big one, Actually, the uh, spiritual direction, confession, anointing of the sick. A lot of people don't realize that women deacons did perform this sacrament because a man would never come into the home of a sick woman and certainly would never touch her. So, um, you know, it just came out. I haven't had much response to it. Well, when we're talking, like, this was, like, last week, February right. 11th. So, yeah. I mean, w w this is hot off the press. In fact, I almost burned my finger when you, <laughs> you gave me and signed this beautiful copy. And we do want to recommend it. It's, it's published by Paulus Press, Women Icons of Christ. And there's so much richness in here. There's so much history, so much theology, so much canon law. You know, so if you're, if you're a canon law nerd out there, and there are some, by all means, you know, you're going to love this. But I think, you know, I, I just want to say, as, as one theologian to another and, and as, as a friend, I'm so grateful for the work, Phyllis, that you've done and continue to do for the church, for the world, for ministry, uh, for the guild, the academic guild. And this book is just a great contribution to that. It's the latest of many. And I know David appreciates it, too. We, we're, we're so grateful to have you as uh, now a recurring guest on The Francis Effect. I'm just come back anytime. I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to talk with you. Uh, it's... It's, to me, an important um, ministry to help restore the place of women in our lovely church, really. And, and to, to tell people, you know, um, there's always hope. I'm not the Pope. I'm not the Holy Spirit. But they're in charge, and, and, and I have hope. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Dr. Phyllis Sagano, for joining us on The Francis Effect, and wish you all the best with your workshops and your traveling, because I know you have a speaking schedule in Europe. So as this episode drops, you'll be on the other side of the pond. Blessings on that. Thank you. God bless. Welcome back to Anaheim, California. We are in the convention center at the L.A. Congress of Religious Education. We're at the L.A. Religious Education Congress. I'm here with Dan Horan. I'm David Dalt. And we are talking to the Reverend Thomas C. Gibbons of Paulist Productions. Yeah, Tom Gibbons. Dan Horan. Bishop and Martyr. <laughs> <laughs> so before I say anything else, there's a lot of things to say about Tom. But before he was Father Tom, he was Seminarian Tom, and I was... I guess, seminarian Dan, brother Dan back in the day. Tom and I are ordination classmates. We're classmates from Washington Theological Union, which seems like a very long time ago now. Time Seven is, and a half years. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. It goes by in a flash. Uh -huh. So Tom is uh, a Paulist priest. He works at Paulist Productions here in Los Angeles. He has done a number of projects, uh, critically acclaimed, really well-received projects, including a documentary about Isaac Hecker, who is the founder of the Paulist Fathers. We'll talk more about that. He's got a new web series coming out called Nuns Talk Church. Nuns Talk Church. I want to make sure I get that right. And there's, there's a lot more to say, but I have to say, first of all, Tom, thank you for taking the time to join us. It's been so good to see you in person, and it's great to catch up. And I'm also terrified because we know each other for a long time. <laughs> well, we, we did the, uh, you know, it, well, we really got to know each other because we did all the theological reflections together. That's right. So it was kind of like those courses where you have to, like, unpack your psyche and get into all the yeah. nitty gritty. And all that That's right. That's right. Well, and we, I mean, and we did all the kind of practic practicum ministry stuff together, like, practice confessions yes. and learning how to preside. And so, you know, I think now, you're the first person I ever anointed. Yes. Quote, air quotes. Air quotes, air quotes being used for this. <laughs> 
So, so we go way back, and it's, and it's so great to be at LA Congress, where these kind of connections and friendships and everything can be renewed. Tom, maybe we can start by saying, like, what's your experience of Congress in general? Because you've been coming for a while now. You've been out on the West Coast for a yes. bit, right? Yes. I've been in Los Angeles for about three and a half years. So uh, just, well, hypothetically, it's only supposed to be 45, down, 45 minutes down the road. But depending on what time with LA traffic, you know, I think it took me a little shy two hours to get down here. But uh, yeah, Congress is that thing where you see everybody. You meet all these connections where, you know, I had this feeling like when we graduated, I like I actually got sick, so I didn't even see you at graduation. Oh wow, that was yeah, twenty twelve. Yeah, so yeah. it was like twenty twelve. So I felt like we did all this stuff together, and then it was like everybody was in such a rush to go get ordained. And you know, usually like when you graduate college or something like that, it's kind of like, oh, let's all hang out, let's all do this. And then everyone's like, yeah, I got a plan for my first mass. I got a, I'm moving to this country or I'm moving to this place. And so there really wasn't that time. But then all of a sudden you come back to Congress, and it's just like, oh hey, how you doing? You know, oh I haven't seen you. I mean, I literally just five minutes ago bumped into an old parishioner of mine at St. Austin's Parish in Austin, oh, Texas. Wow. You know, so it's like, it's all these people that it's, it's almost like one of the many functions that the LA Congress does. It's almost like this big Catholic reunion. It really is. Yeah. I mean, I like to talk about it. That's, that's a great way to describe it. I also think of it as like a vocational booster shot. Yeah. You know, when you think about all the things that can kind of get you down about the world and about the church today, yep. you come here with 30,000 plus people who are all excited to be here. They're enlivened by their faith. They want to hear people speak. They want to learn. They want to yep. grow. And one of the things that the Paulist community does so well is evangelization, is communications, is media. So let's talk about that. This is, you know, it's right up your alley. My co-host here, Dr. David Dalt, is also a, a media guy, but of the audio sort. You are more visual, right? So yep. tell us about yep. how you got into documentary filmmaking, you know, that, all that. Yeah, um, I, I think one of the reasons I joined the Paulist Fathers is because when I was discerning the idea of joining religious life or becoming a priest, I was always interested in media. And I always thought I was going to be a Jesuit. So I went to a Jesuit college and a Jesuit volunteer corps after college. And so I always kind of had that Jesuity background. And then I was like, well, am I going to become a priest? Am I going to do this? And then I kind of spent some time in the desert, so to speak. Time in the desert in Baltimore, Maryland, however much <laughs> time in the Old Bay Desert, you know. Um, and then a uh, lot of crab cracking lot, going on. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> only Jesus could have only eaten so well in the desert. And then I found the Paul's Fathers. And it was like, oh, they do communications. And I was, at the time, a web developer for Catholic Relief Services. I was like, oh, my gosh, there's a religious community that does web design. And I'd always been very interested in American history. And the Paulist Fathers are the first men's religious community founded in the United States. And when I started hearing about Isaac Hecker, the guy who started the Paulist Fathers, he just had such an incredible story. Because usually when we hear about... Most religious communities have their origin in Europe. So there's kind of this, you know, somebody was in Italy, someone was in Spain, which is all Case great. Case in point, Franciscans, Case in point, Francis, 800 years ago. Exactly. Comparatively speaking, the Paulists are relatively modern. Yeah, 160. 160 years. But Isaac Hecker was hanging out with, before he became Catholic, he was originally Methodist, he was hanging out with Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry David Throw, Louisa May Alcott, the writer of Little Women. And I was just like, oh, how I've never, I never experienced someone's Catholic journey being so American and something that I could relate to. And I, that was just such a great window for me. And I just felt 
you know, all the check boxes were coming into line. So when I was in seminary, I started messing around with video. And then as a Deacon project, I did like a short film on Isaac Hecker and then was assigned to Toronto for three years. And then when I got back, they said, what do you want to do? It's like, I never really got to finish the Hecker film. So I got to work on kind of like a Ken Burnsy version of the life of times of Father Isaac Thomas Hecker, now servant of God, Isaac Thomas That's Hecker. right. He's on his way. Yep. So the, the Isaac Hecker documentary, is that your first kind of feature length project? Yes. Yes. I know so you worked on that for years. Uh, it, it, yeah. It was like, but it was, I was always working on it like part time. It was yeah. kind of like, oh, let me grab an image here and let me throw this here. I mean, I was working on a different small project for the Paul's Fathers. And I always loved Ken Burns films. And then I would say, oh, I had access to all the photo archives. And I thought to myself, oh, all I need to do, quote unquote, all I need to do is film some talking heads, have some people talk over some dialogue and have some motion moving pictures in iMovie and I'm done. And then it was like, wait a minute. Uh, then I learned there's a little bit more to it than that. So I just kind of like uh, spent time filming, learning, cutting my teeth. And yeah. So I have a follow-on question. Sure. And this is something that fascinates me with anyone that does media ministry. We're adjacent to basically Hollywood. Yes. And anyone who has spent any time in Los Angeles or around Hollywood, it's an incredibly resource-intensive industry. Yes. It's, it's, it takes a lot of money to make even a video of kind of middling quality, let alone one that is high quality. Right. Every Catholic order that I know has a particular charism of voluntary poverty. Yes. And so I'm wondering about how orders balance the kind of dollars that are necessary to make a project like this well over against that desire to remain, to have a witness of poverty. Actually, but the, the Paulist Fathers, we have, we actually don't take a vow of poverty. I was really? just going to say, uh-huh. I remember it was Tom, it was Tom in the cafeteria of the yes. Washington Theological <laughs> Union who first informed me of this more than a decade ago. Yes. It was early in the morning. I, I remember the day because I was under this impression, this same sort of thing you were, David, that, I mean, because I belong to a religious order, there's a canonical difference, you know, there's societies of apostolic life, there are these different things, there's religious orders of the capital O, and we're the ones who are, are who who have the kind of standard poverty, chastity, obedience as understood kind of more broadly. But I remember Tom telling me something about, you know, having to check some kind of investments or something like this. And I'm like, what the hell are you talking about investments? <laughs> and then I learned about this because that's, yeah, there's, you guys live a common life. You're in a community, but it's not the same. It's, it's slightly different. Well, right? I, I'd say it's slightly different. So what I say, it's, it's, a, it's a promise. It's not a vow of poverty. It's a promise of biblical simplicity. Mm. And so it works out in different ways. So, for example, if, if uh, I win the lottery, if I, Tom Gibbons, win the lottery, I can keep the money. Now, I'm sure uh, the president of the Paul's Fathers might be giving me a call. That's right. Father, about some other Father uses Eric for Andrews. Brother Eric Andrews <laughs> might be giving me a call about some other, other uh, options that we could be using that money for. But at the same time, it's, it's like, for example, I, sold, I had a house before I joined the Paul's Fathers. I actually, I sometimes joke that because I joined the Paul's Fathers in 2006, which was right before the real estate bubble. So I sometimes joke that joining the Paul's Fathers was the best financial decision I ever made because I actually not made a huge amount of money, but made a little bit of money off that sale. But I got to keep that money. Now, obviously, you know, I'm willed that money to the Paul's Fathers and to different, you know, and and different things. But, you know, I don't have to go through that complete renouncement. Now, that being said, if I buy a laptop 
through the community, it's, it's ideal that I'm using it for the mission. So, and that's kind of how that works. But to your point, I just bought like the new maxed out MacBook Pro. And I was like, and I was even feeling guilty about that because I mean, especially with Pope Francis, there is this, you know, like tension. It's like, how simple am I supposed to be living? But also having the tools that one needs in order to legitimately do the ministry. Well, and I think, you know, just on that point too, as we're talking about it, I'm thinking about my own community, you know, and there's probably no greater saint and founder of a community for evangelical poverty than Francis of Assisi. And yet, even in our rule, our way of life, the way he envisioned it, there's this kind of loophole where it's, we we do profess to live sine proprio in Latin without anything of our own, but he says those things necessary for the ministry, that's an exemption. Right. And so in your case, I could see, you know, the kind of work that you do in doing filmmaking, right. you know, by its very nature and to do it well. And, and like you, David, I mean, you're, you're a lay theologian, a lay uh, producer, but, but you know the cost of this equipment, like you, in, in asking the question. I mean, just to have the bare bones is, is not cheap. And so then that raises a question about good stewardship, you know, right. how are we using it? And, and to bring it back to your work, Tom, and the work of, of Paulus Productions, I mean, you guys are being really great stewards as far as I'm concerned, with, with the history of the church, particularly in the U.S., with evangelization, spreading the word, the gospel. So, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but Paulus Productions has been involved with things like that old Dorothy Day film. Correct. Where Martin yes. Sheen plays Peter Maurin. Yeah, that's right. And yep. uh, were you guys involved with Romero? Yeah, too? we. that was, I would say, uh, probably our biggest film. And actually, we just remastered Romero. That's awesome. For, and, uh, for, the, for his canonization and for the 30th anniversary of the film and up Coming on March 24th, uh, sadly, the 40th anniversary of his death, of his uh, martyrdom. So it was like we kind of did the whole thing where what they do with like Gone with the Wind and all those old films. Like we went through and digitized everything and removed all the dust and scratches and brought the sound back up, you know, just so people can enjoy this film because it's such a powerful film. I mean, the performances are incredible. I remember seeing it for the first time in high school yeah. and it just blew my mind. I mean, it's so well done. It's such a great cast. But I mean, that's that's the kind of thing I'm thinking of. And uh, tell us about Nuns Talk Church. Well, what we're doing is on kind of like a smaller scale, you know, because what we're doing with media nowadays, it's like, what do you do media? Do you do it on TV? Do you just do it on your phone? Do you do it uh, in big movies? You know, and so I think this is a question anybody who's any kind of ministry is asking, where do I share the good news? Where do I share the message? So what we're trying to do is we're trying to put a dip our toe a little bit in the internet and just create one minute internet shorts and realizing that people get to hear from priests all the time, especially every Sunday. We get to, you know, for better or for worse, you know, they have to listen to us. Mostly worse. <laughs> Mostly worse. Yeah, we, we, we won't get into those specific With examples. With all due respect yeah, to our <laughs> shared homiletics professors. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> we just used to shake their heads every time we got up and talked. That's but, not entirely yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, sometimes true. Sometimes true, right. Um, but, but what we do, you know, our, the president of Paul's Productions is a layman who'd been serving on the board of Paul's Productions for years and years and years. He's former president of the UPN network and wow. had was a showrunner on the TV show Growing Pains. He came up with the idea. It's like, why don't we do this show? His name's Mike Sullivan. Why don't we do – we never get to hear from women's religious, you know, with everything going on in the church right now. And frankly, they have a, a higher – poll numbers than the priests do, you know, for in some cases, sadly, good reason. Let's hear what they have to say. And so we've just been doing like a lot of one minute interviews on it's like we just say any topic you want. Just let us know. And we just sit and film for two minutes and then just chop it down to one minute video. So nunstalkchurch.com or on Facebook. I think you do at nunstalkchurch. That's fantastic. 
One of the things that, I mean, in hearing you talk about all this, one of the things that keeps occurring to me is that question that you just asked, should we put this on television? Should we put this on the Internet? Where should we put this? That's also a stewardship question because you want to figure out how to reach an audience in 2020. That's going to look different than it looked in 1980, in, yep. 19, in 1990, yep. even in 2010. How do the Paulists go about discerning the best use of eyeball resources. Like right. what, what process do you use to figure that out? I would love to say we have like some special formula that we just plug it in. But in many ways, like everybody who's involved with any kind of media is trying to figure this question out. And that's true if you're Paulist Fathers, that's true if you're Disney, that's true if you're Random House, that is true. Well, for, I think, yeah. I think, I think it's also Paulus, true if you're a small-scale podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or small square cut. Yeah. I think the issue with Paulus Productions is you need to find your own Baby Yoda. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, man. Oh, I was I speaking of Disney. I was there yesterday. That's, oh. a, that's always one of my little traditions. I do a little Disney day before they, <laughs> which is why my feet are killing me right now. But Baby Yoda is everywhere. Baby, oh, oh, I can't I can imagine. I mean, that's a marketing bonanza. Yes. So so here's you know, we're so grateful for the time you've taken to join us. So I've got uh, one more follow up question. Yes, sir. And actually, it's a lie. Two follow up questions. One serious, one oh. not so serious. Oh. The not so serious first. Do you have any Dan Haran stories from the day? Well, I mean, my big joke, of course, was we never liked having you in the class because, you know, we knew that you would always throw off our curve. <laughs> you know, so we're like, oh, I'm just going to squeak by this class. I get it. Oh, Dan's in the class. No, we have to work on this because he's going to make us all look bad now. <laughs> I was the the party pooper. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I have to say it's it's been great to see you, Tom. Yeah. And a shout out to our classmate in, well, our classmate, Steve DeWitt of, yes. of the Franciscans, Rich Andre, yes. uh, the Paulists. Um, it's social media has made it nice. Yep. Oh, and David, yes, yes, yeah, no, David Jenner's. David Jenner's, yeah, yeah. He's, I, he's out here somewhere. Is I would he? Think. Well, oh my goodness! He's, I he's gotta go car- see him. Yeah, he's part of the. I thought he was assigned to the West Coast. So this is a Carmelite classmate of ours too. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we had a great cohort, and it really was a blast. Yeah. The last question for you, Tom, and this is the serious question: sure. is you you mentioned Nuns Talk Church. How can folks find the Hecker documentary and other uh, Paulist productions? The Hecker documentary is available on Amazon Prime. So and it's free to download on Amazon Prime. Which wow. is great. However, it is uh, that you can also purchase a copy uh, if you go to heckerfilm.com. You can purchase the DVD. So that's one way. And then uh, Romero is available through iTunes and Amazon Prime. All that good stuff. So the the remastered Romero, as along with a sidetrack with the writer John Sacred Young. And then Nuns Talk Church is available on Facebook. And uh, if you visit nunstalkchurch.com. You have all the videos. We'll be right there, and then we'll be putting it on YouTube very soon as well. That's awesome. Tom, thank you very much. All the best on your ministry and the continued great work of evangelization of the Paulist Fathers. Great to see you, brother. Great to see you too, buddy. Oh, thanks so much for this. This was great. You got it. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with Dan Haran. We are at the L.A. Religious Education Congress in Anaheim, California. There are thousands of people in the room with me, but right now we are talking with Father Jim Martin. And Dan, he's well-known, but let's for those that may not know him, tell us a little bit about Jim Martin. Where to begin? He is the author of 72,345 books. He is editor-at-large at American Magazine. He is very prolific, and you're a pilgrimage leader, retreat leader, public speaker. You are no stranger to to the LA Religious Education Congress, a, a regular here, and people love to hear your talks. You know whether it's about Jesus, a pilgrimage, an earlier book, whether it's about how laughter.
laughter and humor and levity is important in the faith. My life with the saints, a favorite my life of my with family. The saints. That's yeah. right. Yeah. 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 A favorite of mine as well. You're here you know, again, as you are most years, and you're talking about LGBT ministry and uh, in the church, and this follows from, I guess it's, is it your latest book, was Building yeah. a Bridge? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Building a Bridge. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about the workshops, what you're, what you're going to be talking about. Sure, so I'm doing two workshops. One is on prayer, and it's basically about what happens in prayer, because I think that's a big mystery. People, oh, the fruits of prayer. Well, what's supposed to happen when I close my eyes? I think that's really important. And it's a book that I'm doing that's coming out next year called Learning to Pray with Harper One. And then the second panel is a second um, lecture, which is smaller, is going to be on what's next for LGBT Catholic ministry. So the idea is, you know, where do we go next? And just kind of 10 points where I see the church possibly going or where I think the church can be invited to go. And yeah, that's all the outgrowth from this Building a Bridge book and the LGBT ministry that I feel like I've been called into. Yeah, it's been really very moving. And I know that you've had so many experiences. You've talked about this publicly. You've written about this, particularly how touching it is to not only LGBT folks, but their families and people who reach out to you and say, it's, it's meant so much to me to realize that the faith that I've grown in and have passed on to my children who are you know, gay or lesbian or transgender, that, that there's a, a place for them, that they're being recognized here when so often you know, there's, there's a real undercurrent, I would say, within the church. And I would say it's, it's probably a sinful or evil undercurrent that wants to dismiss people, to reject people, to ignore people, to kick people out. And you know, we were just talking before we started this on-air conversation, as it were, about some of the effects of that, you know, the kind of response you've received. And you're no stranger to, shall we call it trolling or hate? Yeah, not now, unfortunately, I'm not. Yeah. Oh, yeah. no, that's Well true. acquainted with it, yeah. Yeah, could you say something about that, you know, in terms of your experience in LGBT ministry and, you know, speaking to and encouraging others in that path of ministry in the church, how should folks kind of respond to that sort of hatred, that sort of dismissal? Yeah, I mean, you're right to say that there's been adulation and condemnation. At the beginning of the the sort of publication of the book, the main response was this kind of gratitude and, you know, people hugging me and crying, and that still happens. I mean, I met a woman just, you know, 10 minutes ago, you know, who was doing the same thing. Very gratifying. And I think because you know, for so long, as you said, Dan, um, so few LGBT people and their families felt welcome in any way in any parish. I would say that this is kind of a, a phenomenon maybe in the last 25 years where there's starting to be a little bit more acceptance and, you know, what the catechism calls for, which is respect, compassion, and sensitivity. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of hatred too. And I get a lot of really hateful stuff directed at not, not just what I'm saying or this ministry, which is shared by a lot of people, obviously, in parishes and schools all over the place. But me personally, you know, you're a heretic, you're this, you're that, you're going to hell. It's pretty disturbing. And yeah, it shows that there's, a, there's still a lot of hatred in the church, unfortunately, and specifically for these people. They become kind of the, the repository of people's anger over so many different things. Um, some of it's about homosexuality. Some of it is about Francis. The Pope, not the, the not of Assisi. Well, you, you'd be surprised how much trolling happens on the internet about Saint Francis of Assisi. Well, I'm sure, you know? yeah. I no. mean, even well, who knows? Uh, I'm sure <laughs> people can get anti- worked up about anything. I know, I know. It's the Dominicans. They're those, the ones that are those most Dominicans, upset. right? Yeah. But uh, you know, or the sexual revolution, or change in the church, or and a lot of times it's it's anger about their own complicated sexuality because you see a lot of the people who are really the most sort of ferocious about it are so-called ex-gays or people who have been, you know, changed 
Well, and, and, you know, for those, because it's an audio podcast, you know, it's really air quotes around this ex-gay or change. And there's some really destructive as, you know, the medical profession and and, uh, kind of social services and counseling professions have highlighted, you know, these these so-called conversion therapy programs and so forth are incredibly destructive. And yet there still are pockets uh, in the church, uh, certain Catholic dioceses where this is being promoted or at least not being condemned in the way that it ought. Yeah, it's very subtle the way they do it. They rarely come out and say, we support conversion therapy, we support ex-gay therapy, but they will sponsor events that have speakers who do that or who say it in subtle ways, or they'll have uh, links on their parish or diocesan website that'll, that'll take you to these places. And it's, it's really destructive. I mean, I, I can't think of anything more destructive than to try to you know change a person's sexuality, which is something they're born with. I mean, every psychiatrist, psychologist, biologist, I mean, you know, rejects these things. In a lot of states and in a lot of countries, as you know, they're banned because right. it's so destructive. And yet we still have pockets in the church that are supporting this. It's, it's really, really uh, unfortunate. Well, I want to pick up on a thread of this because in addition to the question of sexual orientation, there's another strand that gets woven in with this, and it's an idea of kind of biblical masculinity. And so if you look on social media, you'll sometimes talk about, you know, I, for want of a better word, let's call it the weightlifting Jesus. You know, the notion of the kind of macho, that a biblical man, a Catholic man, needs to be strong physically and strong morally and strong mentally and all of that. And I've recently been reading the spiritual biography of Ignatius Loyola. And in the process of that... Never heard of him. <laughs> Who? Uh, that's right. Fan, but, of, fan of Francis of Assisi. There, yes. But one of the things that Ignatius really communicates in his biography is how deeply emotional and sensitive he was. He, yeah. the, the recordings of his copious weeping, of his willingness to be basically visible at the altar right. in a state of emotional disarray. It's very different from this kind of narrative of biblical masculinity. I, don't, I, I just want to put that out there to kind of ask how this, your background as a Jesuit, your background having studied kind of Ignatius Loyola, how this informs some of your ministry in thinking about listening to and being present in solidarity with those that are being pushed out or told that they're not part of the right way of being male, Catholic, etc. Well, you know, that's a great insight. I've actually never thought of it that way because Ignatius does show you know, some traits that could be considered back then feminine. He talks about the gift of tears specifically as a way that God kind of communicates, you know, a very profound spiritual experience. But Ignatius, he also walked with a limp. You know, he was very macho when he was young. Uh, he wanted to impress the ladies. He, he had, you know, nice clothing and he kept his hair nice and all that. But, you know, eventually he thought that those things like appearance sake and it, it's, it's for naught. I mean, he wanted us to look Jesuits to look respectable, but not spend too much time, you know, on our appearance and on our bodies. But there is this weird kind of hyper masculinity that you see creeping into Catholicism. And I think some of it is this kind of, well, I basically don't want to be around gay people, you know, and I don't want anyone to think that in any way I am gay or effeminate. And I know, you know, that's a a pejorative thing, but it's kind of disturbing. And I see, you know, I mean, obviously you want to be fit and you, you know, it's fine to be masculine and it's fine to be, uh, you know, that way uh, as you present yourself. But this notion that it's kind of a a kind of bulwark against, you know, anything that's gay is is bizarre to and, me. And it's a warrior mentality. And it and to be honest, I mean, I, I have an eight-year-old son, and he is the farthest thing from that. And as, as he is developing his identity, he's a sensitive, introverted, you know, not willing to go out and kind of get involved in rough and tumble. Mm-hmm. And I want to make sure that there's a place for him in Absolutely. the church and that there's, there's a place for him to be welcomed. Absolutely. In, yeah. I mean, you know... Uh, 
the, the idea that, that someone like that would, would not feel welcome in the church and not feel like they're fully a boy or fully a man is crazy. I mean, there's a million different ways of being Christian. And who knows what the disciples were like? I mean, who, we have no clue. But yeah, this idea that, you know, Jesus was a weightlifter or a bodybuilder or Jesus was, you know, I mean, okay, fine. To say like, all right, he was, he was tough probably because he was a carpenter. But you, know, you can't really draw conclusions from that about how people should be today. So this has been very, just a great conversation and great insights too, because I hadn't quite made that connection with Ignatius Loyola. So David, that was really insightful. I, I, I want to switch gears just a little bit and talk about something since we last saw each other, you had uh, a really amazing experience. And actually we, Jim and I, we saw each other in Rome a couple months ago, That's right. right before. That's right. Uh, in fact, I, I think we talked about just a couple days later, you were going to have this event, which was at the Pope's own invitation, his own initiative, a uh, private audience. So you had met him as a consultant to one of the dicasteries at the Holy See, and then he had t- taken... Well, you tell the story. Yeah, what no, happened? it was great. I, I'm a consultant to the dicastery for communication, which it's a very low-level position. I help them with their communication strategy in Rome. And when I met him, I said, my name's James Martin, and he said, I'd like to have an audience with you. Now, I had known from friends that he was, in, he was open to that, and so we had a half an hour audience, and I can't say what we talked about, but I can say um, we talked about LGBT Catholics and LGBT people worldwide, and it was incredibly consoling. It was in the Apostolic Palace, uh, which is where he normally meets diplomats and presidents and people like that. They put it on his public schedule. Uh, they sent out a picture. So it was pretty clear that he wanted this meeting to be at least known, right? It was amazing, and I felt completely inspired and consoled and encouraged and I'll tell you, for the first time ever, truly, when I, I don't know if I've told you this, when I walked out of the meeting, I actually felt like I was walking on air. Oh, wow. It was really something. I thought, now I kind of get it. I just felt light and happy. And so it was great. And he was, I can say this, he was totally attentive and totally with it. You know, I think sometimes people think that he's, you know, he's 83 or whatever, and he's a little out of it. He was completely attentive and funny and lively and positive and it was amazing. It was, I never thought I'd have that experience, and I probably never will again. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't think he needs to see me again. But, but you know, it was great. It was really consoling. And, and, you know, and an antidote to a lot of this kind of hatred online. Well, that's what I was going to pick up on is that, you know, some people, not only is there kind of an anti-LGBT sort of vibe and energy, a scapegoating of, of certain individuals, including very marginalized individuals in society and a lot of cultures and in the church. But there's also this kind of anti-Pope Francis element, and there's a real strong Venn diagram of overlap between the two. And so that's, you know, I just want to take this opportunity too, before I forget, to just thank you for the work that you do in this area and the willingness to be a kind of lightning rod at times. I know it's not your desire, and nobody desires that, but I'm thinking about something that's taking place later this summer, which is this conference that's going to be hosted at Fordham University that you've helped uh, bring together and are, are working on the details of now. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's interesting. It's You're right. I didn't set out to be a lightning rod, and I certainly didn't set out to like run a conference, which is a lot more work than I ever imagined. It's called Outreach 2020, little cheesy name. Uh, we, we came up with it very brief, quickly, and then it's not changed. And it's for people in ministry to LGBT Catholics. So what does that mean? That means people mainly in parishes and schools and Catholic institutions. And it's bringing all these people together for uh, building community, uh, learning best practices about all sorts of different topics, and worshiping together. 
I just had a meeting with uh, the person who's doing the music. I don't know if I told you this is David Haas. Oh, sure. The yeah. great liturgical Good musician. Yeah, yeah. And he's he's going to be doing all the music. We're going to have a concert. So I think it'll be really great. You know, these people who are working with LGBT Catholics, you know, whether or not, mainly I would say outreach programs in parishes, but also in schools, high schools and colleges, they don't get a lot of support and there's not any sort of national network. And the idea is to bring them together and also have them see, you know, like at the LA Religious Head Congress, all these amazing speakers talk about that topic. So we're going to have someone talking about Jesus and the LGBT person, the church and the LGBT person, ministering to the margins, like sort of uh, different races and ethnicities, and lots of people talking about their experience, great panels. I think it'll be, I want it to be really user-friendly. I want to key off of that. So you're, you're talking about people that are sort of on the front lines of lay ministry. That's right. But I also am in conversation with a lot of lay persons who are kind of frustrated with the moment that we're in right now. They, they, they have a heart for the kind of bridge building that you're doing, but they're not always sure what in their parish they are allowed to do. Right. And so if, if there are one or two things that you could suggest for lay persons to maybe think about the, who are listening to this, that they can be doing at the parish level or one-on-one uh, to, to help to, to live their conscience on this issue. Yeah, I would say to remember the church's teaching is respect, compassion, and sensitivity. And more basically, the church's teaching is Jesus. I mean, that's the church's teaching. And how does Jesus treat people who are on the margins? We tend to reduce all of church teaching on LGBT people to two or three lines in the catechism, which is crazy. I mean, church teaching is Christ, mercy, love, compassion, right? How does he treat people in the Gospels? That's, that's church teaching. So I'd say remember that. And, you know, there's no problem with your conscience in that case if you're following Jesus. Uh, I'd say also outreach groups are really helpful. To have an outreach group in a parish, even if it's small, is good. I think also be creative. I often tell people like one size doesn't, it's not the most original thing, one size doesn't fit all, you know, and if in your parish, your, your diocese or your school, you don't feel like you can go 100%, then go 90%. It's still good. You know, sometimes I'll tell um, teachers like, all right, okay, you can't have a LGBT or a gay straight alliance in your school because of whatever. Fine. Maybe they can meet outside of school or maybe you can have some sort of informal group in your office or, you know, or maybe you can just reach out to them. You know, you know what I mean? So, so do what you can in your own situation. I mean, it's very big Jesuit concept, discern, discern what works best for you. And also don't feel bad that you're not able to you know, do everything. Well, and Dan mentioned that you're oftentimes in the position of being a lightning rod. And I also want to just offer the invitation for listeners who may want to be praying for you specifically. Yeah. Are there, are there any things that you would need in terms of prayer? Yeah. Uh, (laughs) I think just, you know, that I can kind of get through it. I mean, you know, my physical, mental, emotional, spiritual health. You can pray for the success of this conference. You can pray that we get enough money to sponsor people. And, you know, it's funny. I was just talking to David Haas, this great musician, and he said, well, someone is sponsoring me to to come in and do all this music. And it dawned on me, oh, yeah, right. That's going to cost money. (laughs) I didn't think it was such such a religious thing. Well, right. I just thought like, yeah, you. Right. He's not going to just come in and like pick up his guitar. Yeah. He needs money to come. I thought, oh, I'm glad someone sponsored you. <laughs> so, yeah. So I think, you know, just and, you know, just keep me in your prayers. It's really helpful. I, I rely on people's prayers. Well, I've got two questions for you. One is you are a regular staple, as we said at the introduction of L.A. Congress. You're here, have been for a number of years. So you've seen the ins and outs. You've seen it kind of change. You've seen its consistency. What are your favorite aspects of L.A. Congress? Oh, well, you know, I think walking around the, as we are now on the uh, convention floor, seeing all the exhibits, meeting all the people, you, uh, you know, it's just really touching. You, pe- you meet people who come up to you and tell you what your work has meant to them. 
I enjoy that much more than the talking. Um, I like book signing. I, I really, you know, I'm also kind of a visual person. So we're standing right, right now next to a big uh, display of Catholic devotional art. I love that stuff. It's very hard for me. I'm on a limited budget, as you are, I know, Val Poverty. But it's very hard for me not to want to buy everything. <laughs> but no, I just, I just like meeting the people. And it really is. These are people from all over the, mainly the United States, but all over the world. Unfortunately, I never get a chance to go to the talks, which is sad. Like I'd want to, I would like to see these people, but I get kind of stuck, you know, talking in the convention hall. Here's a confession on my yeah, part. Please. This is my, I think, six Stole's, or seven. Stole is on. Stole yeah. is on. That's right. You yeah. can't see it. Very purple. Yeah, exactly. Stole. He, he carries it in his pocket. It's amazing. I don't think I've ever been to another workshop either, other than the ones that I've given. It's you so know. busy. It's it's so busy. That's exactly right. There's a lot going on in between. But and there's it's, amazing people. Yeah. Like I would love to hear. I mean, they're incredible people. Well, I noticed that even you know tomorrow afternoon, there's a bunch of people oh. who are speaking the same time as me, including one James Martin S.J. Oh, and him. so oh, I him. could expect about four people yeah. at my talk because gonna... about 40,000 will be at, at they his. They better. <laughs> I'll be like, what are you doing at Dan Haran's talk? I'm Get gonna over come, here. I'm going to come in. Over. I'm going to come in. What do you tell me what you're talking about this, this weekend? Oh, well... Uh, sure. So what, you forgot. I forgot. Uh, Wait a minute. Something about Francis. Something. I think. Something. Something. Catholic. <laughs> something. Something. Right. Calling. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm uh, doing two workshops, talking about uh, the spirituality of Pope Francis, particularly about holiness, and then uh, the other workshop I'm giving is how we could rethink the human person in light of science, in light of theology and philosophy. I'm calling it "Loving the Dust We Are." You know, great title. Right, thank There's you. your next book. Yeah. Well, it comes from my latest book. So oh, okay. Thank you there for you reading go. it, Jim. Yeah. There you That's go. Right. Yeah. I think I blurbed it. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, the last question I have for you is this. Um, speaking of books, yeah. can you tell us a little bit about the book on prayer? Yeah, I'm really excited about it. It's called Learning to Pray, colon, A Guide for <laughs> Everyone. Loving the yeah, Dust We Are. The dust we are. I should have <laughs> just stolen that right. It's actually called Loving the Dust We Are, colon, A Guide to Prayer. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, I wanted to write a big book on prayer for a long time. And, and truly, as I said earlier, one of the biggest things that I don't ever see addressed in books on spirituality, but that people ask, you know, because they're, you know, in spiritual direction is what, what is actually supposed to happen? Like most people literally do not, am I supposed to see visions or hear voices or what happens? Because when you tell people like, oh, you know, go off and pray. I was just reading about that today on an online thing. And, and here's what you need to do. You need to do this. You need to do that. You need to pray and encounter Jesus in your prayer. And people say, well, what is that supposed to mean? What, what is, I don't understand that. Is he going to show up? Like no, Beetlejuice? What I, no, what is, so what I talk about are emotions, desires, memories, feelings, insights, words, images, mystical experiences to, to like really like what actually happens inside. I want to really try to, in a good way, demystify it. And then the, the, the rest of the book is about different techniques of prayer, Lexio Divina, the exam, Ignatian contemplation, center in prayer, nature prayer. I really had fun writing it. A lot of stories, nothing, no, no um, confidence is broken, but it's, it's fine. I hope it helps people. I, I wanted to be someone you could give someone who knew nothing about prayer or has trouble praying, but also people that are kind of advanced in the spiritual life that might be able to, you know, get some new stuff out of it. Sounds great. Yeah, Looking thanks. forward to thanks. it. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Yeah. But I do like Loving the Dust We Are. This might be a better title. Maybe <laughs> I need to tell my publisher. That's right. Yeah. Harper One. Take That's right. note. That's right. Thank you so much for making time. I know that this is a busy Congress for you every year, and so the fact that you had a couple minutes to, to join us means a lot. Thanks for coming back on the show, and I hope that you come back again in the future. But thanks for being here today. My pleasure. Thanks to both of you. Hey, this is David. We're back in Chicago now. 
This is the first of two episodes that we recorded at the LA Religious Education Congress, and I just want to say how grateful I am to all of our supporters who have helped to make this financially possible for us to do this kind of work on location, but also to all the people that came up to us and told us how much they liked the show. It really means a lot to us that this means a lot to you, and the fact that you're willing to seek us out and tell us that is a tremendous blessing. So we had a great time. We're excited to go back next year, but for right now, please know that you're in our prayers. Please keep us in your prayers, and we'll be back with you in another couple of weeks. Thank you again for listening.